Well, we are continuing tonight in our study of Revelation, and we took a, a little hiatus, hiatus from uh, that study, and we went to uh, Ezekiel 37 through 30, 39, but we're back in Revelation 20 tonight, and so we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10, so find Revelation 20 in your Bible, and we'll read it together, Revelation 20. Uh, verses 1 through 10. You can go ahead and remain seated. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. Uh, The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask tonight that once again your Holy Spirit might be our teacher. Lord, that you would help us to firmly understand these things that your word has declared. And Lord, we... uh, we study these things because you've given us them to us in your word. And we know there's nothing in your word that is unimportant and uh, not inspired by you and not profitable for teaching and for correction and training and instruction in righteousness. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to benefit from this. And, Lord, uh, even though these are things yet future, uh, we know these are things that are certain because you are sovereign. And so, Lord, we uh, trust these things to you, and we pray that the part that we have to play, uh, that we will be faithful uh, to do the work you've called us to. And, Lord, someday we'll be with you forever and ever, and we long for that day. But until then, help us to be faithful uh, for the work that you've given us here. So, Lord, we pray again tonight. You bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight we will be looking at the millennial reign of Christ. 
Can you imagine a world that is completely dominated by righteousness and justice? Can you imagine that world? We're certainly not living in that world now. Can you imagine a world where the curse of sin has been removed and Jesus Christ himself is ruling the nations along with his saints? Now that may seem like a pipe dream to many people, but that is exactly what the Bible declares will someday take place. There are literally hundreds of Old Testament passages that predict this age of the Messianic kingdom. John MacArthur says, The millennial kingdom is called by many names in Scripture. In Matthew 19:28, Jesus calls it the regeneration. Acts 3:19 describes the kingdom as the times of refreshing while verse 21 of that chapter calls it the period of the restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul refers to it in Ephesians 1.10 as an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And we see all these various ways in which it's referred to, but it's talking about that coming kingdom of God. The theme of the kingdom is also a very prominent theme in the New Testament as well. John Bright has written that the Bible is one book. Had we to give that book a title, we might call it the book of the coming kingdom of God. That is a very, very prominent theme in the Word of God. And it's for this reason that Revelation 20 is perhaps the most important chapter in the entire book of Revelation. Even though it is not the only place in the Bible where the millennium is taught, it is one of the most clear passages on this kingdom age. And this passage really reveals some things about the millennial kingdom that are not revealed anywhere else in Scripture. And the passage we read just a few minutes ago is a very, very important passage of Scripture. This is a key text. We read those first ten verses of chapter 20 just a few minutes ago. And uh, you may remember that I had introduced the subject of the millennium uh, several weeks ago uh, at the end of chapter 19, just before we went to Ezekiel 37 through 39. But because this is such a critical passage, I want to read it again. I want us to get this fresh in our minds. I want us to think through it as we read it. And then we'll come back and break this down in more detail. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. No doubt who that is. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be 
released for a short time. We're going to see that later on. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand, and they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life again until the thousand years were completed. This is, notice, the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Here we see Gog and Magog again. A thousand years later, he's going to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever. This is a critical, critical passage. Theologians have debated this passage for centuries. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been here in Revelation, but I hope you remember that we were looking at the issue of hermeneutics and why we take the thousand years of the millennium literally. And I noted that it has been widely recognized that if you take the Scripture literally, it always leads to a premillennial position. And John MacArthur gives three primary reasons why we should interpret Old Testament prophecies literally. And even though these are lengthy quotes, I want to just read this to you because this is very, very important. Three reasons why we should interpret the Old Testament prophecies literally. He says, first of all, if the literal sense of a passage is rejected, who is to determine then what the non-literal or spiritual meaning is. You just pick one. It's your opinion. He says the normal rules of interpretation no longer apply. How can you do hermeneutics then? And then he quotes Walter Kaiser, who says, short of saying that every person's fancy is his or her own rule, in other words, you can interpret it any way you want, There simply, he says, are no justifiable criteria for setting boundaries once the interpreter departs from the normal usage of language. Once you leave the literal translation and understanding of language, it's a free-for-all. 
You can pick your own interpretation. MacArthur gives a second reason. He says adopting a non-literal view of the Old Testament kingdom prophecies raises some very disturbing questions, such as, what did those prophecies mean to those to whom they were addressed, the original audience? If the prophecies seemingly addressed to Israel only apply to the church, as some claim, then, and and by the way, the church did not exist at the time these prophecies were given, then did God's revelation did God's revelation fail to reveal? He says, and if those prophecies were meant to apply symbolically to the church, why then are they addressed to Israel? And then he asks, what meaning could such prophecies have in their historical setting? So these are some questions that are raised. He says, ironically, many who spiritualize Old Testament prophecies reject the futurist interpretation of Revelation because it allegedly robs the book of its meaning for those to whom it was written. Why? Because it's future, right? He says, and yet, they do the same thing concerning the Old Testament kingdom prophecies. Third, he gives a third reason, spiritualizing these prophecies leads to some glaring inconsistencies. For example, it is inconsistent to argue that the cursings that they pronounce apply literally to Israel, while the blessings they promise apply symbolically and spiritually to the church. This is something uh, all millennialists especially do, is they, they claim, yeah, the judgments, all the uh, you know, cursings that are pronounced... Our literature should be taken literally against Israel, but the blessings, well, that applies to the church. That's when they spiritualize. He says both all millennialists and post-millennialists interpret some prophetic events literally, such as Christ's second coming. All groups agree that Christ is coming again, or the great white throne judgment, or the new heavens and the new earth. So the question is, why not interpret the millennial kingdom literally? Why do they pick and choose? Now, they interpret non-prophetic passages usually in a literal, historical, grammatical way. And many of these are very good scholars. And they're very good when it comes to hermeneutics on most passages. And you read their commentaries... And they're very good exegetes. They can give a good understanding of the text. And they use a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic until it comes to these kinds of things, especially the millennial kingdom. So the question is, why then do they change their hermeneutical approach when it comes to prophecy? Well... We don't have to wonder how this came about because historically it all comes down to the influence of one man, a man named Augustine. 
Well, actually, it started just a little bit earlier than Augustine with the Alexandrian school and most notably Origen. But there's no doubt that Augustine had the greatest influence. Johnson says the ancient church down to the time of Augustine unquestionably held to the teaching of an earthly historical reign of peace that was to follow the defeat of the Antichrist and the physical resurrection of the saints, but was to precede the judgment and the eternal state or the new creation. In other words, up until Augustine, the church was premillennial in its understanding of end-time events. The church took the thousand-year reign of Christ literally up until Augustine. But as Burkhoff explains, with Augustine, the die was cast against the expectation of a literal millennial kingdom for centuries to come. All millennialism was the view of most of the reformers, as you probably know. And anyone really who today who is who embraces Reformed theology most likely holds the view of all millennialism. Now, I said that, I made that statement earlier, and uh, I need to retract that somewhat, uh, because when I say Reformed tradition here, I'm talking about Reformed theology in regard to eschatology. Uh, because, you know, if you're a Presbyterian, you're probably going to be an all-millennialist. That kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, the word reformed can mean a lot of different things. Uh, and we would have to say we are reformed because we embrace the souls of the Reformation. So when it comes to soteriology, yes, we embrace uh, reformed theology. Uh, you know, but you can get into uh, the bap- baptism of infants and you can, you can get into continuity and discontinuity. A lot of different things that the term reformed can mean. But when it comes to eschatology, most who embrace the Reformed tradition are all millennials. And it's because of Augustine and before that, Origen. But the truth of the matter is something called the recapitulation method of interpretation has had a huge impact on the issue of eschatology now for centuries, both in the Catholic Church and in the Protestant Church. But it was Augustine's approach that uh, started all this, and his influence is still very much with us. In addition to that, Alan Johnson explains that during the Reformation times, still another type of interpretation developed, another uh, hermeneutic, if you will, that was expounded by a Jesuit scholar named Ribera. The main difference in his view, was that he said rather than the millennium taking place on the earth, the millennium is going to take place in heaven. So a little different twist on uh, the millennial kingdom. And we've gone through some of this before, but I just want to give some of this as a review so we can get back on track tonight. This has become, um, I think, a very debated area of theology. And especially today, if you talk to uh, some of the younger theologians, many have embraced uh, all millennialism and uh, some even post millennialism. 
Before we move into the text of chapter 20, though, I want to just go back and give a few more comments about the three main millennial positions. And you remember this, but I want to just kind of go back through this quickly again. First of all, there is the premillennial position. There are two major varieties of premillennialists, the dispensational premillennialists and the historic premillennials. Steve Gregg explains that the principal point of departure between these two groups is that the dispensationalists believe in a special status of the nation of Israel in the redemptive work of God in the end times. In other words, they're not counting Israel out. God's not finished with Israel yet. God still has that future plan for Israel. And that is going to result in a restored millennial temple in Jerusalem, complete with Levitical priests and animal sacrifice. That has been widely debated. Whereas, he says, the historic premillenarians see the church rather than ethnic Israel as prominent in the millennial kingdom. And so the main difference between uh, dispensationalists and historic premillennialists has to do with uh, what is actually going to take place during the millennial reign. He also says that dispensationalists are distinctive in holding that the church will be raptured out at out of the earth seven years prior to the commencement of the millennium. Pre-millennialists uh, believe the rapture is going to take place. Usually they're also pre-trib, meaning that the rapture will take place at the beginning of the tribulation. Whereas other premillennialists see the rapture of the church as occurring simultaneous to the descent of Christ to earth at the establishment of the millennial, uh, millennial order. In other words, uh, some believe that uh, the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, and they're going to occur at the same time. And we spent a whole lot of time on that. As far as post-millennialism, that is the idea that the world is going to become Christianized either as a result of worldwide revival and mass conversion to the gospel or through the imposition of Christian ideals by converted rulers and Christian governments. And this is an interesting um, position. Jonathan Edwards was one of the early proponents of postmillennialism. But in modern times, it is most often held by those who are part of the Christian Reconstruction Movement. And there are a lot of homeschoolers involved with this. Sometimes this is called dominion theology. But uh, some even believe that uh, we need to force people to become Christians. Oh, what does that sound like? That sounds like another religion that's trying to force people to convert to that religion. What about all millennialists? Well, Revelation 20 is understood by all millennialists as being spiritually or symbolically interpreted, not literally interpreted. Uh, Greg writes, the time frame is seen to be the whole time between Christ's first and second advents. Thus, the binding of Satan at the beginning of the millennium is associated with the first coming of Christ 
And the fire from heaven at the end of the millennium is associated with his second coming. And if you read it, it gets really confusing. And uh, you have all kinds of wild understandings of what things mean. Uh, Greg goes on to explain that in addition to the treatment of Revelation 20, each millennial position has its own way of understanding the Old Testament prophets' prediction of a messianic kingdom age. And virtually all the Old Testament prophets, as well as the Psalms, anticipate a golden age of great peace and justice ruled over by the expected Messiah. Pre-millenarian interpreters may apply these passages to the future millennium, as the dispensationalists do. Or they may see them fulfilled at least partially in the church, as well as in the millennium, as some historic premillennialists do. The all-millennialists generally assume that all such prophecies are fulfilled during the entire age of the church, assigning spiritual meanings to the terminology and the prophecies. Post-millennialists may apply them either to the entire church age or specifically to the golden age of the present dispensation. And by the way, I don't know how anybody could call this the golden age, but some foolishly do. Well, those are the views that we have as we come to this chapter And I think it's very important that we understand some of this as we come along. But let's move now into chapter 20. Uh, We're going to see three aspects of the millennial kingdom here. First of all, we see the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. One of the main reasons why the millennial kingdom will be such a blessed kingdom is the fact that Satan is going to be taken out of the world. We're not going to have to deal with Satan anymore. I mean, look with me again at verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Even though this chapter has a lot to do with the millennial kingdom, and that is really what this chapter is known for, it also has to do a lot to do with the final activity of Satan. Now that the beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire, the attention turns to the one who is behind their evil Reign, which is the devil himself. And although there are some who have claimed that this is simply a recapitulation of the account of Satan being cast out of heaven to the earth, as we saw in chapter nine, I mean chapter twelve, verse nine, that can't be the case here, because here he is taken away from the earth to the abyss, and rather than deceiving the whole world, as it says in chapter 12, verse 9, he is now unable to have any evil influence in the world until the end of the thousand years. Postmillennialists and all-millennialists often want to see this binding as the defeat of 
Satan by Christ on the cross. And many times you'll hear that spiritual explanation. But as Dr. Thomas explains, the only way that one could view Satan as bound before a time in the future would be to construe his binding as a restriction of his activity, not a cessation of it. He's certainly not bound because he's alive and well on planet Earth. He says, confinement to the abyss, however, requires a complete termination of his activity in the sphere of the earth. And to date, this has never happened. We know that hasn't happened. And the uniform testimony of the New Testament is that Satan is not bound during the period between Christ's two advents. And by the way, if anybody claims that they're binding Satan, I don't know how he keeps getting loose, but he does. As the king sets up his kingdom... The first order of business is going to be to remove the chief rebel. And no longer will Satan be the god of this world or the prince of the power of the air. Can you imagine how that's going to change the world when Satan is no longer here tempting people? I mean, imagine a world with no devil to tempt anyone. There'll be no devil, no demons. They will all be removed from the earth. Back to the very beginning of verse 1, the phrase, Kai, I done, and I saw, indicates progression in the chronological flow here. This has been the case all throughout this book. We've seen that phrase. It fits perfectly with the futuristic premillennial perspective. This means that the millennial kingdom will come after the second coming of Christ. That's the last thing we saw in chapter 19. And if we take the book of Revelation in its natural chronological flow, it shows that after the seven years of tribulation, chapters 6 through 18, the Lord will return, chapter 19, and then He will establish His kingdom in chapter 20. And then beginning in chapter uh, 21, we see the eternal state and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And again, even those who do not hold to a premillennial view of eschatology are at this point forced to admit that if you interpret the Bible literally, you necessarily end up with premillennialism. MacArthur quotes a guy named Anthony Hokemach, who is an all-millennialist. And he says, let us assume, for example, that the book of Revelation is to be interpreted in an exclusively futuristic sense. Let us further assume that what is presented in Revelation 20 must necessarily follow in chronological order what was described in chapter 19. We are then, he says, virtually compelled to believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ depicted in chapter 20, verse 4, must come after the return of Christ described in chapter 19, verse 11. Well, duh, of course. What good reason is there for not taking it in its natural, logical, chronological order? There is none. There is none. MacArthur says the passage clearly teaches that Christ's return precedes the millennial kingdom. A scenario incomplete with, uh, incompatible with 
postmillennialism and amillennialism, but exactly what premillennialism teaches. And he says to get around the difficulty of the chronology of Revelation poses for their views, postmillennialists and amillennialists must deny that chapter 20 follows chapter 19 chronologically. And you're going to see that if you read commentaries as well. Well, go back to verse 1 again. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. Verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Listen, it really isn't that important to know who this angel is. And they debate this, but it's possible that it could be Michael the archangel here. It appears from Scripture that he is the most powerful of God's holy angels, and therefore this would be a logical choice here. Jude 9 calls him the archangel, and Michael is pictured in Scripture as a great adversary of Satan. Some have suggested that this angel might be someone else, such as Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Twelve Apostles, one of the popes, and you know that's Catholic theology, or Constantine. None of those claims, however, really has any validity. As Wolverd writes, the better course is to understand, understand him to be a special angel commissioned for this particular task. And whether he's Michael or not, he is no doubt a mighty angel. The angel is pictured here as coming down from heaven. And the reason this is so is because Satan is now confined to the earth. So the angel has to descend from heaven to the earth in order to lay hold of him. This angel has two things in his hand. The key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And we've already seen this key in chapter 9, verse 1. There it says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. In that case, the angel was opening the bottomless pit to let some horrible demons out. In this case, he's going to be putting some in. And the great chain in verse 1 doesn't necessarily have to be taken literally. As long as we understand this means that Satan will be literally bound. Being a supernatural being... It is likely that this refers to some other type of restraint that is known only to, only to God, but here it's referred to as a chain. Interestingly, in Jude 6, we're told that there are certain demons that are kept in eternal bonds. The King James has everlasting chains. It's a different word that is used for chains in Revelation 20, verse 1, but it literally means bands, like bands of iron. The point is that Satan is going to be completely bound. The word for abyss there is a fairly common word in Scripture. It is used seven times here in the Revelation. It is always a literal place. It is a temporary place of torment for the demon. And we learn from the gospel writers that the abyss is not the permanent place of torment for 
Satan and his demons. That is called the lake of fire. But it is a place the demons fear. And we learn from the story of the demons that were cast into the swine that they do not want to go to this place because they will be tormented there and will be contained there. They will be bound. The Apostle Peter talks about this place as the prison house of the worst demons, those who cohabitated with women in Genesis chapter 6. I mean, listen to 1 Peter three nineteen and 20. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now that's a difficult passage, but the bottom line is this is speaking of certain demons who attempted to corrupt the human race by cohabitating with women in order to create an unredeemable race. And these demons were so wicked and vile that Jude 6 tells us God shut them up in the abyss and that they will never be released. They ultimately will be transferred then to the lake of fire. Jude 6 describes their confinement as eternal bonds. And they will be kept there until the day of their final judgment in the lake of fire, where they will be joined by Satan and all the rest of the demons. Now, we don't need to go through the four titles that are used for Satan here in verse 1, because we've already seen them in chapter 12, verse 9. There's no doubt who this is. This is Satan. This is the devil The reference to the thousand years here is the first of six times that this same amount of time is mentioned in this chapter. We see the reference to a thousand years in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. Even the constant repetition of this number is confirmation that this is literal. Walbert says, It is the plain statement of the text six times. It is doubtful that any symbolic number, if there be such, is ever repeated that many times. It's clear. It's a thousand years. Now, some who may want to deny that this thousand-year period is literal may point to 2 Peter 3.8, which says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Psalm 90, verse 4, is also pointed to. But as some point out, a thousand years in these two verses refers to a literal thousand years. And to say that the period with man is only one day with God does not deny that it is still actually a thousand years to men, even though it is something else to God. It's still literal to men. Wolvert explains the point, that the point is that time does not limit an eternal God, not that he is ignorant of what time means to men. And we've already seen where there's nowhere in the Revelation 
that it is certain that any number should be taken symbolically. Anytime John wants to convey an indefinite number, especially in regard to a length of time, he uses a phrase like micron, chronon, a little time. And that's the phrase that he uses in chapter 20 and verse 3 to describe how long Satan will be released at the end of the millennium. He's going to be released for a little time. Just a short time. But it's an indefinite number. But there's another problem for those who do not take this at face value. MacArthur writes, Satan's binding poses a serious difficulty for post-millennialists and all-millennialists. All-millennialists argue that Satan is already bound, since they believe we're already in the millennium now, though they do not view it as a 1,000-year literal period of time. He says many post-millennialists also believe that Satan is presently bound because otherwise it would be difficult to see how the church could usher in the millennium. And yet the biblical description of Satan's activity in the present age makes it impossible to believe that Satan is already bound. How could anybody today, any believer, believe that Satan is already bound? He will be during the millennial kingdom. But at this point, he has not been. Well, we've given a lot tonight to think about. I think this is probably a good place to stop, and we'll continue next time. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for our time tonight in your word. Lord, we pray to help us to understand theology, to understand uh, this uh, uh, area of theology called eschatology, that we would understand the truth of your word, you've given to it, uh, given it to us for a reason. So, Lord, we pray you'd help us to be able to sort through these things and understand them and know that there's coming a day when Satan is going to be completely bound. And, Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to that great kingdom. We look forward to that age of, of peace and righteousness and the reign of Christ on this earth. And, Lord, we want others to know you so that they can be part of that as well. And we thank you tonight that, that we have the assurance of that, that we'll be there, we'll be part of that kingdom. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us be about your work and help us to be faithful this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>